Tonight we come to the close of this third chapter of this wonderful little book that uh, Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. This is just a very encouraging letter. It's intended to lift the spirits of a church that was in an, an environment that was very hostile to Christianity. It's a letter to teach them how to cope and how that they can live a life that's far different from the life that they lived before. I believe that we could find six principal means of encouragement in this letter to the Philippians. Number one is that it is God who works in you and supplies all of your needs. Number two is that God has designed your life to be one of trials and testing. So trials are not outside of God's boundaries. He is still in control. Number three, you have the example of Christ who was humbly obedient even unto death. Number four, those who are humble will be exalted as Christ was exalted. And then number five, mark the good example of Christians who have met trials and defeated them. Follow them as they walk with Christ. And then number six is where we are tonight. You are in the world, but you are not of the world. This world is not your home, and one day Christ will come to take you home to your real home. So look forward to that day with great anticipation. Tonight I want to begin a four-part message entitled, Heaven's Colony. We're in the world, but we're not citizens of this world. Our citizenship is not here, but God has colonized the earth with his people. And our real home, though, is in heaven. Let's stand, please, as we read God's word. We're looking at Philippians chapter 3 and verses 20 and 21. Philippians three twenty and 21. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and those who have come tonight. Lord, we just pray for a blessing from your word. Help us to learn something as We look at this great letter from the Apostle Paul. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. As I mentioned ago, this is a four-part message. This evening I want to concentrate on just the first phrase in verse number 20. It says, for our conversation is in heaven. Now, conversation is one of those King James words that we have to explain and to update in order to accommodate the modern way of speaking. When the Bible uses this word conversation, it uses it in a different way than what we're used to. Now, we're used to thinking of conversation. That means how we speak, how you talk to one another. Conversation or converse is to speak with one another. But when the King James uses this word, it has a very much broader meaning than that. It doesn't mean just the way that we talk, but it means the way that we live. It has to do with our conduct. It has to do with all phases of the way that we conduct our lives. And when Paul used this underlying word uh, in the Greek that's translated here as conversation, he had in mind the conduct of a citizen. How a person acts, how he speaks, how he carries himself, all of that is representative of his people group. It's representative of the country that he's from and for the people who live there. Now, Paul was a Roman citizen... And on a human level, he was proud of that citizenship. 
Roman citizenship afforded him certain rights and privileges, and Paul wasn't adverse to using his Roman citizenship wherever he needed to in order to enhance the preaching of the gospel of Christ. And so as he speaks to the Philippians, the idea of representing your country well was something that they could identify with. They were far off from Rome, but they were Roman citizens. They were a Roman colony. And they were proud of that status, proud to be Roman citizens, just like we're proud to be Americans. Now, they wanted to act like Roman citizens, and they had certain expectations in which they did not want to bring reproach upon uh, the country of their citizenship. Now, in like manner, Paul tells them, he, he says, you are citizens of heaven, and this citizenship is far above your Roman citizenship. You are a colony of heaven. You're God's people that are away from home. And so in all that you do, you are to conduct yourselves as God's citizens, heaven's citizens, so that you don't bring reproach upon your king, you don't bring reproach upon that country that you're from or from others of God's people who are also a part of this colony of heaven. Now, much of what I have to say uh, in these messages will be complementary to our study on Sunday mornings. Now, there, of course, we're dealing with the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is teaching on this very theme about life in his kingdom. He's teaching people how to conduct themselves living in a kingdom that is not their real home. They're representatives of another kingdom, of this heavenly kingdom. And so perhaps we may add some information here, might even repeat some things that we're already looking at in the Sunday morning study in Matthew. He says, our conversation is in heaven. Our citizenship is what this means, is in heaven. The citizenship of, of our country is that of the heavenly city. Now, the writer of Hebrews expresses this about Abraham, who is the father of the faithful. He said, by faith, Abraham, when he was called to go in, out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out not knowing whither he went. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now, there's a verse that tells us that, or a passage that says that Abraham's hope was not in this world. He was a stranger. He was a pilgrim here. He was sojourning, just passing through, and he was on his way to that heavenly city that he knew by faith. And that is essentially what Paul is saying here in the book of Philippians. Now, even though we know that we have a different citizenship, uh, we still ought to understand that being a citizen of the country where we're going should change our attitudes. It ought to change our lives. It ought to change our conduct in many ways so that we reflect well upon that place. But knowing that we're citizens of a different country doesn't change the fact that we're still living in this world. And while we're living here, we are subject to earthly kingdoms. Being a citizen of heaven doesn't change the fact that we still have an earthly citizenship. And so, uh, if you are a citizen of heaven, what it really should do for you is to make you a better citizen of this country. It ought to make you a better American because you are a Christian. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. And just as salt is valuable, uh, a Christian is a valuable asset to the world, or, or at least you should be. Now, the world may not actually recognize your value, but like salt preserves, Christianity preserves the world. And that's what Christians are doing right now. 
Now just wait till Christians are taken out of this world and then see what happens. And now you can relate the study that we have on uh, Sunday nights in the book of Revelation. All these, kind of, these themes just tie together as we talk about being citizens of heaven. So we're citizens of heaven, but we still live under a human government. Now that's the part that I want to speak to you about tonight. This is the first part of the message. It's about our responsibility to human government. So number one this evening is the responsibility to human government. Now, after the last election, this has become somewhat of a perplexing problem for many Christians. Uh, since we live in a democracy, we have certain freedoms and abilities to change government. There are ways that we can work within our government that actually uh, did not exist for the citizens of Rome in Paul's time. But even though Rome was a a very corrupt government, and it did vigorously persecute Christians, yet we don't find any place in the Scripture where Paul ever advocated overthrowing the government or protesting against any government actions. In fact, Paul did the exact opposite. He wasn't concerned with the laws that the emperor of Rome would make or what the Roman Roman Senate would make. And since we're citizens of another country, we ought not to concern ourselves so much with the actions of what goes on in this country rather than the actions that go on in our heavenly country. We need to be much more concerned about what happens in the kingdom that we're actually citizens of, a part of, than we are what takes place here. I do believe that it is a great mistake for churches to involve themselves with trying to influence uh, legislation and with trying to Christianize an otherwise secular government. Now, the best of what we'll do is to compromise what it means to be a Christian, and at worst, we're going to lose the opportunity of reaching certain segments of the population. There are people that will simply turn against us because they don't like our politics, they don't like our political party. And so for political reasons, when we take stands like that, there are people that we simply are not going to be able to reach. And so there are many good preachers of the past who recognize that, and they advise churches and Christians uh, and the church capacity, at least, to stay out of politics. Unfortunately, the overzealousness of many churches in politics have totally distraught the people. And that's because government begins to pass all of these different laws and certain kinds of legislation that's against their agenda. And so what the churches do is they mobilize people for politics. And when they do that, what happens is the gospel gets left behind. And Christians become depressed because of what's going on in the world. And so their head falls in their hands and they lament, Woe is me, what are we going to do now? What are we going to do with this president that we have? What are we going to do with Congress? What are we going to do with the Supreme Court? And everybody's always worried about what's going to happen. I don't see Paul doing any of that. In the midst of persecution and living under a hostile government that was against him in ways that we've never seen before, Paul was not saying, I don't know what to do. And neither were any of the other apostles saying those things. They weren't saying what are we going to do? They were saying, what do you expect? The world is against you. The world was against Christ. That's the way things are. Uh, You're not of this world. The world hates you. You're from another world. So don't expect they're going to treat you any differently and don't expect the world's going to do any differently. And Jesus said the same thing too. He said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar and unto God's the things that are God's. Our business is not the world's business. Our business is the king's business. And 
By that I mean the king of kings. So let me do according to his kingdom. And the world will go on just as it always has until God decides that he's going to end it. And so all the while we're waiting for that, folks, live under the government you have and stop whining about it. Now, I know that that doesn't sit too well with many strongly opinionated Christian Americans. So where do we involve ourselves and where do we not? Well, I think that as a church, we stay out of the fight. I don't see that there's anything in the Scriptures about churches taking up political causes. So that means I'm not going to pass out petitions through the church for the purpose of lobbying for any kind of legislation. Now, on a personal level... I think things are different. That as an individual, you most definitely have a responsibility to vote like a good moral Christian. And you should involve yourselves in politics only to the extent that it doesn't hinder your work for Christ. If politics is the thing that dominates your life, then the wrong thing is dominating you. See, I I can't see Paul calling for a meeting of the church to discuss the latest legislative proposal. Now, having said that, and maybe... That's enough said, maybe it's not enough said. But what is our responsibility towards our government? Well, I find three imperatives in the Scripture for the Christian's relationship with government. The first one is in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul writes, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Now, first of all, Paul says here, pray for those who are in authority. Even if you don't agree with them, pray for them. And Paul even goes further. He says, give thanks for them. Now, I confess to you that I have trouble giving thanks for Barack Obama, but that's what I'm told to do. Why? Because he's the one who's in authority. You say, well, why is that so important? I didn't put him there. Maybe you didn't put him there, and I didn't put him there. But you know something, folks? God did. You know, I think that's the hardest thing for us to really to accept, and that is that our president is appointed by God. Now, that doesn't mean that God approves of all of his policies, We know that that can't be true because God is not the author of evil. And so when the president favors abortion, when he agrees with destroying embryos for stem cell research, which is nothing more than murder, then God doesn't approve of what he's doing. He doesn't approve of that any more than he approves of Nero burning Christians. When he supports homosexuality in any way, God does not approve of that. Now I want you to turn over to Romans chapter 3 or excuse me, Romans 13, because here we have some good information about Christians and civil government. I want you to keep chapter 13 open for a while because we're going to refer to this several times. In this 13th chapter, verse number 1, Paul says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. So it's useless for... Christians to fret and worry about who is the president because whether he even knows it or not, he serves at the discretion of God. Now, he may totally despise uh, God's authority. He may despise Christians, I don't know, but he serves because God has put him there. 
See, Christians can flourish under any kind of government. It doesn't make any difference whether it's democracy or a monarchy, communism, a a totalitarian regime. It simply doesn't matter. God has control of it all. And the very best that we could do for a leader that we don't personally like is to pray for him. Pray that he'll govern rightly. Pray that he'll have success. Pray for his salvation. Certainly don't pray against him. Now, this was particularly important for the people that were in Paul's day because people were very suspicious of Christians. They wrongly and falsely accused Christians of being against the government and trying to uh, be seditionists and try to overthrow the government. And all that did was just fuel the hatred against them. And so for a Christian to act purposely against his government, that was like throwing gasoline on an already raging fire. And that's exactly what I was talking about earlier. How are you going to win people to the Lord when you've already alienated them with your politics? And so I think we have to be very careful about this. Uh, Sometimes I, I find it very difficult to keep quiet. But I know this, if I'm not careful, my politics will keep people out of church. Now, if you're already a Christian and you disagree with me politically... That would be no reason to leave a church because whether people are independents or Republicans or Democrats, it's not the political party that binds us. I mean, where did the Bible ever say that we're bound together by political parties? The thing that binds us is the love of Christ. And so if you're a person who lets politics rule your relationship, you've got the wrong idea of what your purpose is here. So Paul is teaching us here, We're commanded to pray for those in authority. These are are people who have heavy pressures on them. They make life and death decisions. They have the responsibility of protecting our country. And folks, for goodness sake, that guy has his thumb on the button. He has the power to blow other countries to smithereens. Pray that he uses his power wisely. And then, of course, pray that, as the Apostle Paul said there in 1 Timothy, pray that whatever the government does, that we can live peaceably under our government. Pray for a good environment for Christians, certainly so. Now, the second imperative for Christians in human government is to honor those who are in authority. In that same discourse about government, Romans 13, I want you to look at verse number 7. Here, Paul says, Render, therefore, to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. First part of that means pay your taxes. You live under the government that God has ordained. He has ordained it for your good, and so pay up. It has to be supported. It doesn't run without money. Pay your taxes. Same thing is true of a church. I mean, a church doesn't run without money, so God's people have to support it. They have to bring their tithes and their offerings, so God's work goes on. But we're to honor the man who's in office. Not because he deserves any kind of personal honor, but his office demands that honor. There are many people in government that we certainly cannot honor on a personal level. I mean, their behavior is reprehensible on a personal level. Level. We've had presidents that are adulterers and liars and thieves and heathens, but we honor them for the sake of their office. We honor them because they are divinely appointed. And we ought to be able to see that so clearly from the Scriptures that even if you didn't vote for the man, the outcome is in the hands of God. God put him there, and so he's the one that we are to 
be under his authority and honor him. Now, Paul shows us that kind of right character by a personal example. When he was tried before King Agrippa, he just finished giving his testimony, and Festus, the Roman governor, spoke up. And here's the exchange that took place between Paul and Festus. This is in Acts chapter 26. Paul is speaking, or this is in the conversation. And as he thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. Now, Paul called that heathen Roman governor noble. He gave him the respect that was due him. Now, here was a man who hated what Paul was doing. He hated Paul's work. He cared nothing at all for Christians. And yet Paul, when he spoke to him, called him noble. He didn't disrespect him because he was a man of authority. There was another time when Paul appeared before the Jewish Sanhedrin, and there was an an interesting exchange that took place there too. Uh, Turn over to Acts chapter 23, if you would. And here we find, uh, I mean, this, this is part of that whole affair of what caused Paul to eventually end up in Rome. I mean, here was sort of the, sort of the uh, instigation of that. And uh, it's the whole reason why Paul writes to the church at Philippi from a prison cell. Because what's taking place here in Acts chapter 23? But if you look at verse number 1 in Acts 23, it says, Now Paul is standing before the Sanhedrin, and Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. Then said Paul unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall. For sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law? And they that stood by said, Revilest thou God's high priest? Then said Paul, I wish not, brethren, I did know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. Now there you see Paul got a little bit testy when they hit him on the mouth to try to keep him quiet. And for some reason, Paul didn't recognize that Ananias was the high priest. Now some people have guessed about why that was. Some say, well, maybe Ananias wasn't wearing the high priest clothing And so Paul didn't recognize who he was. Maybe it was because Ananias wasn't sitting in the customary seat where the high priest would sit. But whatever it was, Paul didn't know that he was the high priest, and so he lashed out against him. But then when he was advised of this, when he was told that he'd spoken harshly against the person who was in authority, immediately there came forth an apology. Paul said, I didn't know he was the high priest. And then he showed him the proper respect by quoting Scripture. He said, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. And folks, there is our lesson. We are to honor those who are in authority. We're not to speak evil of them. Now, I know that's hard for us to do, but living as citizens of this world and being good citizens and owning citizenship in heaven, this is exactly what the Bible commands us to do. A few weeks ago, I was talking to someone in the foyer, and and I made a statement. I said, you know, if the president walked in here tonight, I would give him the respect that's due to his office. I may not like his policies, but he's our leader, and so he deserves our respect. Now, there's one more imperative about our government. Thirdly, we are to obey those in authority. Now, we go back to Romans chapter 13 again, and it says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers... For there is no power but of God. 
The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Now when you obey those who are in authority, you are obeying the law. In fact, you are obeying God's laws. Part of obeying God's law is to obey human laws. Now the command to obey human government then is as godly as obeying the Ten Commandments, because actually all of God's commands are incorporated into those Ten Commandments. That's God's moral law. Now, to say that Paul then respected human government and obeyed human government would be an understatement, because there was no one who knew the laws of God better than the Apostle Paul. And that's why he corrected himself when he found out that he'd spoken against the one who was in authority. He recognized what God's law said about it. And so he respected him. And when he did, he was doing nothing less than following the greatest example that we have, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is, of course, the king of the universe. And yet, when he made himself the servant of men, he also made himself the servant of human government. I've already alluded to this incident once, but to show you how Jesus respected human government, the Pharisees tried to trip him up. They tried to get him to make some kind of a seditionist statement, some, something that would say that he didn't honor the government. They were trying to get him at least to do something to break the Scriptures. And here's what happened. The crafty Pharisee said to him, Tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. And he saith unto them, Whose is the image and superscription? They say unto him, Caesar's. Then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. Now the government of Caesar was without doubt, we know, very hostile to Christianity. Jesus knew that. And Jesus also knew what the Roman government would end up doing to him. But never did Jesus tell any of the disciples to break the laws of the government even though knowing that it was hostile against Christians. See, Christians are always to be law-abiding citizens, and the only law that a Christian should ever break is one that is against the Scriptures and against a sanctified conscience. Now, that doesn't mean that you can stop paying your taxes because you are a conscientious objector. Uh, You don't think taxes ought to be paid. You think it's a bad thing. No, you can't do that. It's not personal bias that... We're talking about here. I'm talking about something that wounds the conscience of a Christian because it is against the laws of God. The only laws that we can refuse to obey that our government has made are those laws that come in conflict with God's laws. And so if the human government, if the United States government ever says this, pastors that perform any weddings must perform all weddings, that's a law that I would break. I'm not going to marry non-Christians, and I'm not going to marry homosexual couples. I just wouldn't do it. If the law says, well, your Christian school cannot discriminate in the hiring of homosexuals, that is a law that will break. And that's because God's laws supersede all human laws. So praying and honoring, obeying, those are all things that God demands of Christians concerning human government. We're a colony of heaven. But that doesn't divorce us from our responsibility to the government under which we live. 
Now, before I close this part of the message, I I want to address one other issue relating to the church and human government. This is the last statement on your listening sheet. But don't get too excited yet because I'm not done. So don't rattle the pages and put everything up just yet. Here's your statement. There is no organic relationship between the church and civil government. There is no organic relationship between the church and civil government. If you're interested in more information about Christians and civil government, then I would invite you to uh, look up our series on the church statement of faith that we did in 2004, and we, we talked about some of these very issues that I'm speaking about tonight. Uh, if you can get those fellows back there to find the message on uh, article number 16, then you'll find some of the same information that we talked about tonight. But even though Christ is the supreme ruler of the universe, one thing he has not done, he has not given the church the authority to interfere with civil government. The church and the government are to remain separate until the time that Christ comes to rule upon this earth in a perfect government. And there is coming a time when he'll do that. During the millennial reign of Christ, he'll come to reign in a theocratic kingdom. He will rule here for a thousand years with a rod of iron. And the only human laws that will be in that kingdom are laws that do not conflict with God's holy law. But in the meantime... Of course, we're not at that place yet. And in the meantime, ecclesiastical authority should never be mixed with civil authority. We cannot force people to obey religious laws. And neither should we try to do that. Now, our founding fathers were very wise in this area. They knew what comes when you put church and state together. And so they put it in the Constitution. There has to be a separation of that. Well, God, of course, is the one who knows better than all. He's the all-wise God, and he also knows that church-state actions only produce one thing, and that is religious persecution. The church is of divine origin, and that means that Christ is the ruler of the church. And so when you try to mix the church with human government, what you do is you bring down the authority. You put man in charge of the church. You put man in charge of government and church together. And what happens when you do that? Well, man is sinful. Man's not God. Man can't act like God in in those ways. And so when you put sinful man in with a sinful government, you're going to get bad things. Sin is going to be the result. It only took a few short years uh, after Constantine wed the Roman Empire with the Catholic Church and made that the Holy Roman Empire. It didn't take very long until persecution by secular government became persecution by religious government. Now, the only thing that actually changed in that whole scenario was that a corrupt church joined up with a corrupt government. And what do you think is going to be the result of that? Are people going to become holy and righteous because suddenly the church is running the government? Absolutely not. What it does is it just causes more sin. It pushes people deeper into their corruption. It causes men who already thirst for power to become even more powerful and more sinful and more corrupt. It's exactly the way it's always happened. So how does our Christianity coincide with civil government? Well, there's only one way, and that is that a Christian believer should live as a citizen of his country that through his actions... He does his best to establish conditions that will make or more perfectly represent a Christ-like community. 
Now, that does not mean that the state has the ability to enforce such actions. If we can't do it by preaching the gospel of Christ, then we simply cannot do it. And so that's why, as a pastor, I'm not going to join in with any groups, whether they're evangelical or fundamental, who seek to influence legislation and somehow have a Christianized agenda. I do not see that that is the part of the Lord's church. That's not our business. Our business is the Lord's business. And so if Paul had the idea that the thing for Christians to do is to work against the government or involve themselves as the church in government policies, then what he would have done, he would have started passing out petitions. He would have signed up people to picket against the Roman emperors because of their persecution of Christians. You would have found Paul out there trying to organize a temperance society and trying to stop all of the debauchery and all the drinking and all the things that the Roman emperors carried on as they uh, tried to govern in in a very wicked way. You'd find Paul out there organizing a rally against temple prostitutes. But Paul didn't do anything like that because that was not the business of the church. We are a heavenly colony, but it's our business I should say not our business, to try to bring heaven on earth. The only way that we're ever able going to affect the society that's around us, the only way that we can help the world is to make more citizens of heaven. And the more citizens there are of heaven that are inhabiting the earth, then the more that corruption, evil, is retarded upon this earth. And so the only way that we can make citizens of heaven, of course, is to give them the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, let's make it our business to do the Lord's business and leave the world's business to the world. Our citizenship is in heaven, and our business is to look for the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ and to encourage others to do likewise. That's how we relate to our government. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we spend together tonight. Some of the things we talk about here are not popular. They go against the grain of Christians who are always thinking about being American citizens and thinking about our rights and what we have to do to maintain our rights. But, Lord, we need to understand that as a church body, that our business, again, is to do your business. Our business is to preach the gospel of Christ. Our business is to make citizens of heaven that are part of the colony here on earth. So, Lord, we just pray that you would help us to do that and help us to have a right relationship, help us to pray, to honor, and to obey those that are in authority. Help us to watch our mouths and our attitudes, Lord, that we might reflect well as citizens of the heavenly country. Blessing this invitation, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.